Well, as I just prayed, we're going to be concluding our study of the book of Hebrews today. We're going to look at Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. So if you are able, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Where the writer of Hebrews says to us, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Well, here we have a benediction, what we call a benediction. And if you'll notice in the order of service uh, for our, uh, in our worship service bulletin, uh, the very end of the service you have uh, a benediction here as well. Now, what is a benediction? It's not just the signal that the worship service is about to be over and you can go to lunch uh, or home, as whatever the case may be. Um, the, the benediction is a very important part of worship and the Christian life. Uh, the word benediction uh, comes from the Latin benedictio, which means a good word, bene, good, dictio, word. A good word or a blessing. It's a blessing. It's a pronouncement of a blessing. It's a prayer for a blessing from God, and it's done by someone who has been ordained by God to be, as in our case, a minister of the gospel, or in the Old Testament times, a priest of God. You remember the Aaronic blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you. That was a blessing or a benediction that was prescribed by God to be used by the priests uh, when they were worshiping the Lord. So, at the end of the service today, as, we, as I mentioned, we will, uh, I will pronounce a benediction, a blessing from God upon this congregation, and uh, some of you will hold your hands out like this because it's uh, symbolic. I want to receive this blessing from God. I want to receive uh, a blessing from the Lord. Well, here at the end of this letter to the Hebrews, our author, our author pronounces a benediction, a blessing upon his readers. Now, context is important here for us to get a true understanding of what he's saying. As we've been saying all through these 13 chapters of Hebrews, the audience that was receiving this letter were a bunch of beleaguered Christians ready to give up. They were being persecuted and ridiculed, and some were imprisoned. They were suffering. They were weary from the battle They were worn down and ready to give up. And maybe some of you can identify with them today. And what blessing from God do weary Christians need? What blessing from God do weary Christians need? Well, just what's being said here. They need God to equip them and work in them so they they can do the pleasure of God in the face of persecution, tribulation, and suffering. And we need that as well in our day and time. Under increasing hostility in our culture and abroad, we need for God to equip us and work in us so that we can do 
the will and the pleasure of God in the face of the difficulties of our lives. Well, I've given you an outline. You can see there, there's two things I want to look at, two parts of this benediction. I want to first look at the requestee, the one whom we are asking to send a blessing, namely God. I want to look at what it says about God here. And then want to look at the request itself. What is he actually asking God to do? Well, first, we see here that God is the one who blesses. He is the one we are asking, that the writer of Hebrews is asking. Now may God, the God of peace, may he send a blessing to you. So we see here the first thing that is said about God here is that he is the God of peace. Now, we, we might read over that and not really uh, pay attention to what's being said here. Uh, it's just a title for God, and we can gloss over that easily as we read through it. In fact, as I was looking at commentaries to aid me in my studies, uh, a lot of the commentators gave these verses a really uh, a short, short little paragraph, not much to say about it. And I think that's short-sighted, uh, but, you know, they've, read, they've written a lot in the first 13 chapters. Maybe they were tired by the time they got to verses 20 and 21. I'm not sure. But uh, the information and the, the real exegesis of the passage was lacking in a lot of commentaries on these two verses. But I believe that uh, he's using the God of peace uh, with intent. He, there's a reason he uses that. It's not just some random title, but he's choosing that word wisely. You see, these people to whom he was writing knew little of peace in their lives. They were being persecuted, thrown in prison. They were suffering greatly. They were, uh, because of their faith, enduring economic hardship. Sometimes they were having their things confiscated because of their faith. So they knew little of peace in their lives experiencing all kinds of discord, strife, and enmity from the people around them. And they were struggling, and they had no rest, no peace in their lives. And throughout this letter, you see the writer of Hebrews trying to convince them not to quit, not to abandon the faith. Because what they really wanted was to go to a place to... Uh, to believe something that would make their lives easier, more peaceful, more restful, instead of persecuted and stressed. But they were going about it the wrong way, rejecting the God of peace, the God who is the author of peace. That would be a grave mistake. Rejecting the Lord is not the way to peace. The reason there is no peace in the world is because of mankind's original sin that brought the world into enmity with God. The relationship that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden with God was what was intended for mankind, for all, all humans to have a relationship, a, a, a loving relationship with their Creator. But that was broken because of sin. Sin entered the world, and now there's enmity between God and humanity. We're at odds with God. And the only source of peace is God. And the only way to have that fellowship, that relationship restored, is through God's provision in Christ. 
So to quit on God, to quit on Jesus Christ, is a grave mistake. You will never have peace in your life unless you turn to the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. We go to all kinds of places. We do all kinds of things to try to get peace in our lives. Some people turn to uh, uh, addictions. Some people turn to entertainment. Some people pour themselves into the work. They just want some peace in their lives. And the only way that you can get true peace is through Jesus Christ. So that's why he uses this term, the God of peace, the God who gives peace. He's the one that we're asking for a blessing from to these people. Now let's look at what he did. This God of peace, he brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, or our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant. Now there's a lot here, there's a lot going on in these three phrases. First of all, let's look at the Lord Jesus, what it says about the Lord Jesus here. It says that he is the great shepherd of the sheep. It's a great reminder to these beleaguered Christians of who their shepherd is, Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, God is described as a shepherd. Of course, Psalm 23, the famous psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So David, when he wrote this psalm, uses that shepherd imagery from his childhood where he was a shepherd. And instead of being a shepherd himself, of course he was in one sense a shepherd of Israel as their king, but he looked to the Lord to be his shepherd and to restore his soul and to lead him and guide and direct and protect him. And then further on in the Old Testament, we see the promised Messiah in Isaiah 40 is described as a shepherd as well. Isaiah 40, 11 says, He will tend his flock like a shepherd, and he will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Beautiful imagery about the Messiah, and of course the Messiah is Jesus. Jesus identified himself as the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Sheep need a shepherd. Uh, I've had a little experience with sheep, not personally in the sense of being a shepherd or a farmer, but lived in England, as many of you know, for seven years, and we lived in in a place where there was a lot of countryside around us, a lot of farms, a lot of sheep. 
In fact, uh, one of the golf courses I like to play uh, was a common area so uh, local farmers could graze their sheep on the golf course. And, uh, and, and I would often hit the sheep with the golf ball. And they're eating in the fairway, you know, you peg them with a golf ball from about 200 yards out, and they jump and move about 10 feet and start eating again. So not a lot of uh, intelligence or protection there for the sheep. So they do need a shepherd. Uh, they do not know where to go or what to do. They usually just blindly follow the flock. I was doing a little research on sheep for this and saw that uh, if you get one sheep to, to move and go somewhere, the rest will follow. And that's the secret to kind of herding sheep. You can get one to go where you want it to go, they'll all go. And if he goes where you don't want him to go, they're all going to go, and then you've got a problem on your hands. So sheep kind of have their own way of doing things. Uh, they're easy targets for predators. So a shepherd leads the flock to good pasture and to good water. He takes care of the sheep. Uh, he protects them from predators. A, a shepherd makes sure none of the sheep get lost. He makes sure they're all safe where they need to be. Well, human beings need a shepherd too. We don't know where to go or what to do, usually just blindly following the world, prone to wander and get lost, easily influenced by the world, driven by our own fleshly desires and a target for the enemy. And Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep. And God the Father provide, provided a shepherd for us sheep, a shepherd who laid down his life for lost sheep such as we are, his only begotten son, he laid down his life, but the grave did not hold him. God raised him up by the blood of the eternal covenant, it says. So God is the one who provided the shepherd for us, his own son, the shepherd of the sheep, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life. And it's talking about the blood of the eternal covenant. That's how he was raised from the dead. If you'll flip back to chapter 9, he's had a little discussion about the covenant in chapters 8 and 9, but 9 verse 12 through 15. 15. Speaking of Jesus and the new covenant, he says this, He entered, Jesus, once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Isn't that glorious? He secured through his blood an eternal redemption. Redemption is... Uh, getting pulled out of bondage, out of slavery, being rescued from slavery, having a ransom paid for you so that you might not be a prisoner anymore. Verse 13, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He will purify our consciences through his blood to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them 
from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So you see there what the shepherd does. He, Jesus, through the blood of the eternal covenant, the blood shed in this covenant relationship that we might have an eternal inheritance, that we might uh, have our transgressions forgiven and be redeemed. His sacrifice for sin was accepted and he was raised from the dead. It ratified what he did on the cross by raising him up from the dead. He was completely righteous and holy and the grave had no claim on him because when he died, that sacrificial death that shed the blood of the eternal covenant, uh, it was the ultimate act of obedience for the Son. That's what he came to do and he accomplished that and he was perfect in every way because of all that he did. And so the, great, the reason we die is because of sin. Jesus had no sin, therefore the grave had no claim on him. Death had no claim on him. He was raised from the dead. So it was through the blood of the eternal covenant, that shed blood, that the grave couldn't hold him anymore. He, was, he, he must be raised. It was the only right thing to do was for Jesus Christ to be raised from the dead by the blood of his, his, of his covenant. Now, in a few minutes when we take the Lord's Supper, uh, when, we, when I take up the cup, I'll say this cup, in Jesus' words, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Uh, it's, it reminds us, it's a sign and a seal of what Christ did for us by shedding his blood so that we might be in this new covenant relationship. 1 Peter 2, 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We can come and have a relationship with the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Now, why is this important? Back to the benediction. Why is he using this language? Well, he's reminding them, these beleaguered Christians, these beaten down, ready to give up Christians, that the God of peace made sure they had a shepherd. The God of peace makes sure we have a shepherd, one that can cleanse us from sin, one that can raise us up from the dead to have eternal life. God brought the shepherd, the great shepherd of the sheep, from the dead, and now the great shepherd of the sheep will bring his flock from the dead. Because he was raised, we will be raised if we belong to him. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, Romans 8, What then shall we say to these things? God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And that's exactly the same thing that's being said here in Hebrews 13. If God is for us, if the God of peace who raised the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, if he is for us, he will give us all things, everything that we need. And let's look at the request now, because that's where we are. The request that God would equip you with everything good that you may do his will, 
working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So it's a two-pronged request, equip you with everything good and working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. He's really saying the same thing. Those are parallel statements. The writer prays that God the Father, who raised Jesus from the dead, will furnish believers with all they need to do God's will and please Him. So can you do God's will? Can you, can you please Him? Especially when life is difficult? If you are a believer, the answer is yes, because God is working in you. So you, you, you need to say that God is at work here. The strength to please God, the strength to do God's will, is provided by God himself. That's who we're asking to equip you and who, who is, we're asking, yes, may the God of peace give you everything you need to do his will and to equip you and to be pleasing to him. God does not leave us ill-equipped. He gives us what we need to do his will and please him. God is not going to ask us to do something and not give us the tools we need to do it. He doesn't ask you to do the impossible. It may seem like it sometimes. It's like, well, I can't do that. But God, if he asks you to do something, he's going to give you what you need in order to do it. But notice that it says, verse 21, we're asking God to equip you with everything good that you may do his will, that you may do his will. We're not inactive in all this. We're not just sitting back and letting go and letting God. You know, yes, we need God to work in us, but we need to be active. We must do His will. We must do something, that which is pleasing to Him. And remember, God doesn't ask you to do the impossible on your own. Philippians 2 uh, describes this dynamic. Verse 12. 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you. You work out your salvation because God is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, yes, we're not waiting around to do God's will until we feel equipped, he equips you in the moment of obedience. He gives you moment-by-moment grace to do his will, whether it's saying no to a, a habitual sin that you have. If you start saying no to it, God will give you the strength to resist it. Or is it saying yes to something that God wants you to do? Share your faith with someone. I don't think I can talk to that person. Well, you can. If you go do it, God will enable you. God will give you the grace, the strength, the wisdom, everything that you need to be an ambassador for him to that person. God enables you to work hard. Paul said this about his own ministry. He was talking about how he uh, you know, works hard to... Uh, share the gospel, and to build the Colossians. This is from Colossians 1.29. Uh, 
he, he says, I want to see Christ formed in you. I want to see you more like Christ. And for this, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. See, Paul was toiling. He was working hard, but it was with all the energy that God gave to him, worked within him. He tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So God gives us the grace we need in the moment to do His will and to do that which is pleasing in His sight. And when Paul prays for the Ephesians in chapter 1, he asks that they would have the eyes of their hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saint, in this one, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. In other words, that same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father is at work in believers. And he wants them, those Ephesians, to see that, that, that God's power is at work in you. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you if you're a believer. And you can do it. You can do what he asks you to do. You can be pleasing in his sight, even in the face of all the difficulties that are out there. What an encouragement to a bunch of beleaguered Christians who thought they were failing and who were ready to give up. And this wonderful benediction that the God of peace who raised Jesus from the dead, who provided this shepherd, he will equip you and enable you to do his will. And for us, it just requires us trusting the Lord, trusting in what he's told us to do, and going out, he will give us the grace. I mentioned going to England, <clears throat> and that was crazy. Uh, when I was working, I was working at First Pres in Jackson as an assistant pastor there. I had someone call me up and say, hey, I think you'd like to hear what this guy from England has to say. It was one of the professors at the seminary. And in my mind, I was going, no, I don't really have any kind of desire to hear anything about England or somebody from England. And uh, anyway, I went to the meeting anyway because I wanted that guy to like me and uh, not for any other positive reason. But it became apparent through the conversations and just through time and, and God's providence that the Lord wanted us to go to England. And I didn't have, I, they wanted me to go church plant and I didn't have any experience church planting. I didn't have any training to church plant. I went over there without any training on how to plant a church. I just went. And I got some training on cross-cultural stuff, and I worked with a guy who was a church planner, and, and he gave me great tips. But the Lord, as we stepped out in faith and as we went, he provided everything that we needed. And, and today, there's not one church there, but there's four churches there where there were no churches before. And it wasn't that I did anything great. I was just a, really a warm body uh, that, that, that went every Sunday and preached but God provided a wonderful elder and his wife that had just moved to the area where we moved a month before 
ready to lead that church and to help me. He was a manager at the DuPont factory, and he worked all over Europe, so he knew how to handle people. He knew how to, how to ingratiate himself to people, and he loved the Lord, was raised in the church. God provided what we needed, and God provided so many other ways and means to see his church built, but it just required somebody to make themselves available to do God's will. And the same is true for all of us. We may not be called to go overseas, but we are called to do certain things as Christians. And you have a unique gift. You have a unique calling in your own life. And how are you using that? Will you step out and use it? God will give you the grace to do his will and to be pleasing in his sight in whatever he's calling you to do. I'm nothing special. It was God that did the work. I was just a tool. I've had people tell me that before, but not in a positive sense. But I was really, you know, we were just being used by God to do his will. Well, what is God's will for you? And I would say start with what you know. Start with his word and what it tells you to do. Repent, turn from sin, trust the Lord, and then move forward in what he calls you to do. Because you've got a shepherd. You've got a shepherd who's taking care of you and providing for you and a God who will equip you and enable you to do his will in everything that is pleasing in his sight. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your word and this great benediction. We do pray that that blessing would be upon us as well, that, that we would know uh, that you're, you are equipping us and we pray, Lord, for any who don't know you here today, we pray that you would draw them into a deeper relationship with you, into a, into a relationship with you. Uh, Lord, we pray that, that they would know the great shepherd of the sheep. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.